Good afternoon, you're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. As usual, I'll be your host for the next hour, Kingsley Kipuri. Um, you know how to reach us. Please tweet us on at DMShowsAD. You can also call in on 0861 And a big shout out to everyone listening in on the app. We love you very much. So keep listening and share our stuff wide and far. Far and wide probably makes more sense. We've got an extra special show lined up. I'm joined by the Noah of all things. You probably know him as the <laughs> Daily Maverick Senior Africa Correspondent, Simon Allison. Welcome to the show. Always a pleasure, and now we'll, I'll try to live up to my billing, but it seems unlikely. <laughs> Man, I can never keep track of you. If it's not Addis, it's, it's Madagascar. If it's Kenya, I'm gl- I'm surprised we could get you for an hour. Well, it's uh, it's been a busy few months actually, but it's been wonderful. I've got to see a lot of this continent of ours, seen some good things, seen some uh, pretty distressing things. But I'm really happy to be home in a land of uh, cheese and wine, which. <laughs> I find those are the things I miss the most when I'm away. Okay, I'm really looking forward to talking about all this stuff. I mean, we'll be talking about a lot of stuff. So firstly, the the, the tragic bombing of the Doctors Without Borders Hospital um, in Afghanistan. We'll also be talking about uh, Madagascar and reports coming out of there of, of, of drought and starvation and chronic malnutrition. And also the recently released Ibrahim Index for Governance. And I'm, I'm really interested to seeing if this whole Africa rising thing has sort of any foundation in, in those stats. So first, I really want to talk about what, I mean, I remember hearing about this and it was just really, I don't know the word, I'm almost depressed about hearing that a hospital in Afghanistan was born, was bombed. And for me, it just made me want, like, think back and think, what is the situation in Afghanistan right now? Um, so could you just give us some context? Who's, who's, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And what's the city of Kunduz and, well, and why I is it think important? Th- this is the problem, you yeah. know. The U.S. has been fighting a war with with its allies in Afghanistan for going on 14 years now, since 2001. You know, they started um, just after September the 11th. It was their retribution yeah. uh, to go into the country that was allegedly harboring um, al-Qaeda. Mm. 14 years later, well, who are they fighting? What have they achieved? Where is Afghanistan? There's no clear answer to these questions. And I think that... What it shows is really that the U.S. got itself involved in a war that it doesn't know how to win, um, and it doesn't even know what its objectives are anymore. The, the biggest, you know, one of the biggest things that's been overlooked in in, in all the um, press about, about the tragedy that happened to the MSF hospital is the fact that the fighting in this town of Kunduz um, is the first time that the Taliban have actually retaken a major urban area since 2001. So that means after 14 years of fighting the world's largest army, the Taliban has come out stronger than ever, you know. Um, they're actually regrouping, um, getting more grip in the countryside, and they're using that as a launch pad to go and take urban areas away from Afghan control. And that's quite a horrific thing. And then what happens? So, you know, th- th- let's get into the hospital now and all the various competing stories of what has happened. So MSF's account is that this was a hospital. Everyone knew this was a hospital. It was the biggest hospital in the region. They had sent the coordinates of this hospital to all fighting parties. The most recent time that they'd sent the coordinates to the U.S. was, I think, at the end of September. Mm. So we're talking a matter of days before the bomb struck. 
And this is standard practice for MSF. Um, they are a humanitarian organization that works in contact, uh, contact areas, conflict areas, sorry. They, um, often have to deal with these kinds of situations where they are in the middle of a firefight. Um, and one of their strategies is to make sure that everyone knows where the hospital is. There's always big MSF signs painted on things. Everyone is informed of MSF's well, presence. Yeah, it's supposed to be neutral, right? You come exactly. In, everybody knows that this is this is not part of the conflict. Exactly. It's, a, it's a safe space. So MSF said, you know, everyone knew this, and yet um, the bombs fell anyway. And they really wrought a devastating um, effect on the hospital. I mean, I think it was something like 20 people were killed in that attack. Many of them were hospital workers. And what makes it even harder is, is, you know, getting health workers to work in these areas, um, in war-torn Afghanistan, in a sort of more remote area. So it's not the, the safe, the relative safety of, of the capital, Kabul. You're out, um, far away from there. Um, Getting them to face the, you know, the, the, the threat of Taliban attacks, the threat of airstrikes, getting health workers to actually do these jobs is incredibly difficult. And the people that were there, I think all of the, the aid workers who died were Afghans themselves. And most of them had sacrificed huge amounts personally because they believed that they needed to do this job because no one else was doing this job. They were sacrificing their careers, their own safety, their time with their family in order to provide these vital life-saving services to the population. And now they're dead. Um, the Afghan army account is slightly different. The Afghan army says, well, they were, they were fighting with the Taliban for control of Kunduz. The Afghans were trying to regain Kunduz. Mm. And the Taliban had established a base inside the hospital. And they were being fired on from this base. And so they called the Americans, um, to help with an airstrike. Now, the Americans and the Afghans work very closely together. Mm. So this makes sense. Um, but I mean, there are a few holes in the story too. Did the Taliban really have a base inside the hospital? It seems like a bit of a stretch. I mean, that's the big you know, question, and, it, the, and the accounts have changed slightly. So first it was more of a collateral damage, yes. our bad. And I was like, no, we were asked for an airstrike, so we just did the airstrike. So it's already kind of worrying when the story's already changing in just a few days, then it's, it sounds like somebody's hiding something. Exactly. And then, then the U.S. are saying, well, you know, the, the, the Afghan forces called us, and we just sort of... Um, went with it, um, and uh, they're kind of avoiding responsibility, but they have called for an, in, an internal investigation. I mean, that's what we really want to talk to them about. We're just about to speak to Jens Pedersen, um, the humanitarian advisors of MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders. Uh, Jens, are you with us? Um, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, Jens, I can I can really imagine this is, I mean, such a, a trying time for your organization. I'm, I'm so sorry about everything going on. Could you please just give us a sort of a run-through of, of what your staff on the ground describe as having happened. Yeah, thanks very much for the support. Um, it is indeed the unacceptable, very, very difficult um, situation that we, we, we've been exposed to. Um, our experience, or, or the way it unfolded, mm. was Sunday morning, this past Sunday morning in the early hours. Um, as you know, there has been fighting in the Kunduz area, in the previous days, so our hospital had received high numbers of wounded, treated almost 400 war wounded in the days leading up to this incident on Sunday morning. All of a sudden, Sunday morning, um, the hospital, the main building with the intensive care unit, uh, gets struck by uh, airstrikes. And ongoing so for 
several times over a period of more than an hour, uh, the building, which is the main building of the hospital, with physiotherapy, uh, the intensive care unit, and, and, and other functions as well, gets uh, bombed com- complete to, to complete destruction. I mean, it's I mean, it's unthinkable that something like this would happen. I mean, is it possible that this could have happened by mistake, or is it just straightforward that you make sure that every single person knows exactly where the hospital was? Well, whether it, it, it happened by mistake or what, what the reason behind it is exactly the reason why we've asked for an independent mm-hmm. uh, investigation as to what ha- actually unfolded. All the people that were involved in the conflict, all the parties in, 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 in Kunduz, uh, were all aware of the location, the function, the, the status of this particular hospital. In other words, knowing very, very well that it's a... It's a, it's a, it's a Hospital which has treated the high numbers of wounded, um, that is, <clears throat> excuse me, that it, it's uh, clearly identified, clearly marked. Um, and of course, why then this uh, serious and this unacceptable incident and, and bombing and targeting happened is, is what we demand is, is being investigated and being investigated by an independent party, not mm. by any of the parties to the conflict who have already now set ashore uh, three different investigative bodies. What we want and what is needed in order to actually establish what transpired is that um, someone without an interest in the conflict uh, looks into uh, and, and finds out exactly what happened. Mm. And Jens, your response to the idea or the allegation that the Taliban may have been using this location um, sort of to advance their position in the fight? What, what what we know from our colleagues is that um, the hospital had been the gates to the hospital had been closed. I think, regardless of of, of, of that allegation, the hospital and, and targeting of a hospital is a clear violation of international humanitarian law, and and even as as we've seen uh, that the coalition forces have changed their explanation to to uh, include reference to to to, to such it only highlights the fact that then if that's the case they deliberately destroyed a hospital uh, with 180 people inside of it uh, patients medical staff and and deliberately then killed 22 people when i hear you that would really sort of be a sort of a sort of a damning thing to come out um, I mean, I'm curious. Uh, MSF has been working in conflict areas, you know, for for decades now, um, and 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 there have been sort of issues of security of of the doctors and patients in the past. Um, is there any precedent based on your work in conflict areas of how this might play out in terms of the investigation? Uh, we as MSF, we we haven't. Uh, I mean, this is uh, uh, the first incident of such scale of such horror uh, we witnessed, and, and and as such, we are not. Uh, familiar, we haven't had experiences mm. with with investigations mm. as, as we are calling for now. No. Um, and in terms of your your work in Afghanistan and in that area, could this could this attack make you sort of reconsider still operating in that in that particular conflict area? Well, the hospital in Kunduz, which which uh, just to add to mm. uh, uh, to the reality, is the only high care trauma hospital in Kunduz. Um, so this hospital is now uh, out of function which means, I mean, because of the damage done, because of the, the damage and the killing of, of our staff and injuries, uh, and because we, we, we basically have had to suspend our activities. So 
in the Kunduz area itself, the result is a, a, an appalling and, and a very, very significant lack of, of access to, uh, to health care, mm. surgical care, trauma care in, in that region in northeast Afghanistan. However, we, may, we remain active, of course, in, in many of the other locations we work in in Afghanistan. I mean, that's really good to hear. It sounds like the, the, the kind of service you provide are just so, so essential. And I think it would be a real tragedy if, if this caused you to no longer be able to provide that service. Um, and lastly, have you, I mean, have you had any direct communication with the U.S. forces about this, about this incident? Is, are there talks happening behind the scenes that we're not party to? The uh, direct communication we had with, with, with the forces involved was during the attack when mm-hmm. we reiterated the locations of the hospital the exact GPS coordinate, informing them that that, that our hospital is is, on, is being bombarded, um, in order to 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 try and, and and make sure that that the attack actually stops. But since then, we are, uh, have not been in dialogue with uh, with the parties involved. Jens, I, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, you know, in light of this incident. Do you feel that this is going to affect MSF's operations in Afghanistan more generally and, and even more generally than that? Do you think that MSF is going to be even more weary about going into, into war zones in the future? It's, it's a really good question, and it's, it's still very early to say. I mean, we are, are at the moment uh, conducting the uh, interviews with our colleagues uh, collecting the information mm. uh, on the ground in Kunduz. Um, we are still all of us very, very, very shocked. And, and uh, at the moment, it's, uh, it's not the right time to make that kind of decision. Um, we are, as I said, of course, very, very shocked and, and disgusted by this attack. And, and um, we, 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 will, uh, we need to have a much better picture of what transpired. Uh, we need to make sure our teams are safe. And, and then we, uh, we will be able to make a, a decision. But, but, of course, it has impact on much broader uh, uh, issues of, of humanitarian operations. Mm. If, if when hospitals that are protected by international law um, get uh, blown to pieces, such as this, so it, of course it has impact. Okay, Jens. I mean, thank you, thank you for making time to give us the breakdown. I can imagine things are really busy on your side. Um, please keep up the excellent work, and, and we really just look forward to having some kind of conclusion and, and justice uh, after this all sort of comes together. Thank you, Jens. Thanks very much for your support. Thanks. Okay, fantastic. That was Jens Pedersen, uh, the humanitarian advisor to MSF, Doctors Without Borders, just talking about the tragic, tragic news we've heard about uh, the bombing of a hospital in Afghanistan. If you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Please remember to join the conversation on Twitter, and remember you can also call us in. Um, Simon, I'd like to sort of switch switch topic a bit and, and come up, come back home. I mentioned earlier in the show that you were in Madagascar. Um, not a country we hear too much about, especially since sort of the political upheaval we had, I think, in around 2009. Mm. Things have sort of quietened down. And yeah, so I'm curious since then, and we, we had the new president who's come on board, and I'm curious what is the sort of political stability and governance sort of situation in Madagascar right now? Poor old Madagascar. They, uh, they're known for three things, Madagascar. <laughs> Don't say the movie, please. Number one <laughs> is the movie. <laughs> It's incredible. You talk to, mention Madagascar to anyone, and the first thing they talk about is King Julian. Um, it really has defined a nation. And, and the fact that a children's movie can be so powerful and so pervasive is, is quite an indictment of the, the sort of superficial culture in which we now live. The second thing that they're famous for is their biodiversity. I think something like 70% 
of all of the the plants and animals you see on Madagascar, mm. you don't see anywhere else in the world. Mm. It's incredible, and it's really different. You'll be driving along on the highways. Not that the highways are are up to much, but the scenery is just subtly different. The trees look a bit strange. The leaves are unusual. Um, sometimes the branches will poke out in strange directions, and you think, you know what? I don't feel like I'm on Earth anymore. It's almost like you're on a different planet. And then the third thing they're famous for is their lemurs. Everyone likes um, lemurs. They're very cute. I don't really get the attraction. They seem to behave exactly like monkeys. Um, but they, they stand up on their two, two feet and they look like humans a little bit. So, so maybe that's what it's about. But beyond those three things, yeah. Madagascar doesn't really make an impact on the popular consciousness. This is strange because there's some really serious stuff going on there. Let me talk about the political stuff yeah, first please. because we've got someone, uh, I believe, from UNICEF coming on later on the program. Mm, mm. He'll talk us through some of the humanitarian stuff. But basically, 2009, Madagascar experienced a coup. So um, a DJ, a, a, a DJ on a popular radio station in the capital, Antananarivo, um, took power and he exiled President Mark Ravalo Manana into uh, – he came to South Africa, and he was here for a good three or four mm. years. Mm. And there was a long period of uh, regional mediation. So the Southern African Development Community got involved. The African Union got involved. There was lots of talking. There were lots of roadmaps. There were lots of, you know, per diems and fancy hotels. But at the end of the day – there was actually a successful resolution to this political crisis. Madagascar held elections. Both uh, Ravalo Manana and Andre Rajalina, the, the, the DJ who took power, were prevented from running in those elections. And uh, a new president was elected. His name is, um, and I have, you know, I've spent lots of time this learning this name. It's going to be a tough one. It's like 13 syllables. Let's this go. Guy, this guy has the longest name of any head of state in the world, possibly in history. So I'd like to present to you yep. President Harry Rajao Narimam Pianina. There we go. And I can even spell that. That's my pretty much my only claim to fame. Sure at the right I think we're good. Um, now, President Harry, as everyone calls yeah, him, because it's just easier, he was actually thought to be a puppet of um, Andre Rajalina. So, so no one thought he was his own man. And then he got elected, and it turned out he was his own man, and he was not going to just be, you know, um, taking orders from from the big boss over there. And that has kind of upset the system a little bit because now you've got these two big powers um, who aren't represented in, in the presidency. They both want the presidency, but both of them have very powerful political parties um, who um, – the political parties are still in parliament. So now parliament – is try, keeps trying to unseat the president because mm. the president doesn't actually have a party in parliament. So there's still a lot of fragility in the political scenes. But the real, real tragedy of, of Madagascar and the real reason why we should all know about it is the humanitarian situation. I mean, and that's... It's, 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 it's sad how you have this great story and it's a DJ and it's a great story of this everyday man who gets to be the president. But we forget that behind all this, there's regular people who need service provision. And, and not to mention... Aside from what the government can do, we're talking about environmental concerns and things like drought that even developed countries with public service provision struggle with. In the wake of sort of political instability, it can have a much sort of much bigger effect on how everyday people live. Exactly. Well, well this year, let, let's count them off. We've had um, a drought. 
we've had floods in a different part of the country. So, so one part of the country's got no rain, other part of the country's got more rain than it can deal with. And of course, there's no mechanism to, to distribute that. In South Africa, when that happens, well, we just put it in the pipelines and we send the water somewhere else. There has been cyclones. Um, a whole bunch of cyclones. Uh, Madagascar is, is, is in a cyclone belt, so it regularly gets hit. There has been a outbreak of polio. So Madagascar is one of the few countries in the world that has not eradic- fully eradicated polio. There's been an outbreak of the Black Plague. I think this was actually a, a year or two ago. You know, we're talking medieval diseases here. Even more medieval, in January, I think, um, in one region, all the crops were decimated by a plague of locusts. You know, this is, this is, this is really tragedies of, of biblical proportions affecting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And, you, you know, so, so I was in Madagascar recently, um, at the invitation of UNICEF actually, because UNICEF, their team in Madagascar are sitting there, they're scratching their heads and they're saying, you know what? This is one of the most severe humanitarian situations in the world. And yet no one's interested. We can't get media attention. We can't get funding from donors. We can't get the government to pay attention because the government's too busy um, sorting out its own squabbles. And anyway, it has no money mm. to the extent where if the president wants to travel domestically, he needs to find someone to pay for his flight. That's how bad things have got um, in the treasury of the Madagascan mm. government. So UNICEF really wanted to, to bring a few journalists to Madagascar to say, look, this is the situation, see for yourself. you know, see for yourself. Here, yeah. And, and it was really, it, it, it was horrifying. Um, you know, we, we spoke to, to people in villages whose crops have been completely destroyed. Um, they have no chance of growing anything unless it rains. Um, but even if it rains to tomorrow, the, the food's not going to grow for a few months still. Um, and they're, they're reduced to eating cactus fruit. Now, cactus fruit um, can be very delicious and very nutritious, um, but that's the good kind of ca- cactus fruit, which goes very quickly. They're now eating the bad kind of cactus fruit, which is essentially a pod full of seeds um, with a tiny bit of flesh in it. And, and, and I had one just to see what it was like. It, it tastes kind of like a like a sour plum. And I think the reason that, that it works is, well, you know, the reason that people eat it is because because there's so many seeds inside it, it takes a really, really long time to finish one small fruit, mm. which means you're you're involved in the act of eating for maybe 10 minutes. Um, if you eat two of them, maybe it's 20 minutes. But you're not actually getting any nutrition from that. You, you know, you're, you're doing lots of hard work without getting any food. So it gives you the illusion of being fed. So uh, there, there are just tens of thousands of people surviving on Pretty much nothing, and with absolutely no prospect of this changing anytime soon. I mean, we'll be talking to UNICEF's head of nutrition uh, really shortly. We're just trying to get him on the line from Madagascar. But I love that you brought this point up um, about about food and what food actually is, because you're creating sort of this dichotomy between eating and your stomach is full of something <laughs> and nutrition. And I think your sort of recent work has been trying to popularize um, the other kind of malnutrition that we don't know too much about. I think we're used to the post-Ethiopia sort of picture of what starvation looks like and we've and and what's coming out of Madagascar is a bit different could you just paint that picture of, of what I'm sure I'm sure um like? uh UNICEF's head of nutrition mm. will also speak about this but basically there are two kinds of malnutrition the first is severe acute malnutrition this is the one we know this is the you know there's pictures of starving Ethiopian babies with distended bellies um this is when you don't have enough food mm. and you're going to die soon 
That is severe acute malnutrition. Um, chronic malnutrition is something different. Chronic malnutrition is when you've got enough food, probably not really enough food, but you've got enough food to live, but it's not the right kind of food. It means you're not getting the micronutrients that your body needs. And where this is really a problem is in kids between the ages of zero and five. Mm. Now, this this horrified me more than words can express. If you do not get enough food before the age of five, if you do not get enough of the right food, so for example, you could eat rice, as much rice as you like, every day of your life. It's not going to give you enough micronutrients to make sure you turn into a healthy um, and, and well child. And the long-term impacts of this are um, pretty severe. And I think we've got Simeon on the line, and we'll ask him to To break to it down them. for us from the ground. Um, we have Simeon yeah. now on the line, UNICEF's Chief of Nutrition. Simeon, can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay, fantastic. Thank you for making time, Simeon. I'm just talking to Simon about, about some of the uh, of what's playing out in Madagascar, and he's just breaking down the the difference between acute and chronic malnutrition. Could you just explain play explain that to us? Oh, okay. Um, both chronic and acute malnutrition are two forms of malnutrition that are resulting from, um, I'll say, nutrient restriction. But um, acute malnutrition is mostly related to. Uh, restriction in energy, uh, and um, it is mostly related to uh, the quantity and sufficiency of food, uh, while um, chronic malnutrition is more related to uh, deficiency in key micronutrients that are required for uh, linear growth, but also for the development of the brain. I'm curious as, as um, to how this plays out. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. About about how this plays out over time. So, if you took, if you took sort of two two children, one who had access to the right micronutrients and one who didn't, what is the impact of that on, on them as they grow up? Maybe the first five years, ten years, and into adulthood. How does how does chronic malnutrition play out in the long term? Well, um, we, we we know that the, the development of the brain uh, goes from conception to about when the child is uh, uh, two years old, and during this period, it is really critical to ensure that the child has uh, and the fetus to start with, and then the child uh, in his early life has access to uh, good quality food. Uh, that provide uh, the, the key micronutrient to allow for the brain development and also for linear growth. And beyond that age uh, of two years, um, it, it becomes very difficult to correct the damage that, that uh, the lack of micronutrient has, has, has done, especially the damage on the brain. The, the child can still maybe uh, try to touch up a little bit on linear growth, but the, the damage that was was made on the brain is not something that can be corrected after beyond the age of two. Mm. So it is important to to ensure that um, the, the the mother prior to being pregnant starts pregnancy with a good nutritional status that would with an, uh, enough reserves nutrient reserves for her and also for the fetus, and that uh, throughout pregnancy she uh, uh, has a, a good diet. Uh, and she also uh, uh, follows the antenatal care uh, uh, quite closely. And then 
following birth that the child is put on breast and is exclusively breastfed for the first six months, and then that uh, complementary food, good quality and diversified complementary food is introduced up to up to two years while continuing continuing with breastfeeding. The, the fact is that because of the damage made on on the brain, uh, which uh, uh, translates into um, you know. A, a a kind of shrink uh, network of the, the, the brain cells, this has impact on the capacity of the child to to uh, stay uh, uh, at school and to perform well, and that ultimately results into the adult, the future adult being uh, less productive. And, and if we, we are talking at the population uh, level, then it translates into some uh, significant loss for the country. I mean, I can imagine. I'm thinking at a micro level. Um, um, how many people would you say are at risk of, of suffering from chronic malnutrition? What what percentage of the well, population, here, rather? Well, here in Madagascar right now, we have roughly half of the children who are stunted, uh, and which translates in absolute numbers to about two million children. Mm. Uh, this is already quite a substantial number of. Uh, 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 human capital uh, that is at risk of being uh, either more partially lost. But but the, the worst is that since 1992, the prevalence of, of chronic malnutrition in Madagascar has remained more or less at the same level. So cumulatively, one can easily think uh, since the, 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 the early 90s, how many of the workforce and how many of the brains of these um, kids um, have been kind of uh, partially lost, and it translates into um, significant uh, economic loss for the country. And currently, um, UNICEF is supporting the government to uh, conduct um, an assessment of uh, the, the, the the damage associated to to uh, uh, chronic malnutrition for Madagascar, and hopefully, we will be able to have some uh, figures uh, soon. Simeon, um, can you talk us through? I, I, I know that the w- one of the worst areas for chronic malnutrition is in central Madagascar, and central Madagascar is actually relatively well off compared to other parts of the country. So it's not necessarily about income or access to food, is it? Are we talking about more than food? What what else needs to happen? Well, uh, that's a dilemma that we're trying to understand. It's a dilemma, mm-hmm. but also it sends us a message on, on the fact that, as you said, it's not just about food. Uh, yet, the central part of Madagascar is uh, the most affected by chronic malnutrition, mm-hmm. because there, in some regions, we, we have prevalence of chronic malnutrition about 60%, which is, you know, quite uh, very high, and I would say even an acceptable high. Um, that specific place, we have no evidence to say that it is the place with the uh, poorest indicator in terms of access to health services. We have no, no evidence to say that it is the poorest, uh, um, they have the poorest indicators in terms of food production and access to food, and in terms of water and sanitation, because we know that stunting beyond food is also um, caused by uh, several other factors like the health of the, the, the child, mm. the, the, the environment in which the child is living because if the child is sick, um, the food may be good, 
that the body will not be able to use it uh, adequately. If the child is infected by worms and, and, and bacteria, uh, that would lead to some inflammation. And, and even if the food is good, the, the nutrient, instead of being used for growth, will be diverted to fight against inflammation, and that would lead the, the child to to something. So we, we these high plateau areas seem to be among the well-off in the country, and we still don't understand why um, the chronic malnutrition there is uh, as high as we have seen. And, and we are also on, on this aspect, uh, together with the government, trying to uh, understand by doing analysis of secondary data to, to come up with the relative weight of, of the determinant of malnutrition by region, and hopefully that also would provide a bit of light on why this is so. Hmm, I mean, quite the dilemma. I'm just trying to sort of mentally put my myself in UNICEF's shoes and, and trying to think, um, how do you manage the competing demands? Because I can imagine there's there's a feeling of urgency around people who are starving and at risk of death in the in the immediate term. But at the back of your mind, you know that a significant portion of the population is at risk of, of chronic malnutrition. So how does one balance these competing timelines of knowing that you're trying to keep X number of people and children alive, but knowing that there's this other risk that will play out over decades to come? Well, and, and you have covered that, that we are facing uh, two, uh, what I would say, kind of invisible and asylum crisis. Mm. Because we have in the southern part of the country, uh, you know, we, we, the, the southern part of the country has gone through a drought this year, uh, which has translated into uh, increased uh, prevalence of acute malnutrition. Uh, and therefore, with a significant risk of uh, excess uh, death in that part of the country, and we have to address that. And at the same time, we still need to uh, to, to address the the biggest, I would say, the biggest and silent and invisible crisis for this country, which is chronic malnutrition. That is everywhere. Um, you know, it's not easy uh, to to deal with, but we try to respond to the, the crisis in the south. Simeon, I can imagine sort of the tight position you know you're in and the, and the government is in, and we really applaud your efforts on you know trying to get to make the best of this situation. Um, Simeon, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you so much for making time to come on, and please keep up the excellent work. Thank you. Okay, fantastic. <sighs> I mean, it's you know it's not not much to say after that. It's a it's a really 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 tricky situation, it, and I can't. It really it is, and and you know I want to talk a little bit more about the, the long term impacts yeah. of, of what happens. There was a study done by some researchers about thirty years ago, and they went to a village in a couple of two villages in Guatemala, mm-hmm. and they gave one village a nutritional supplement with lots of micronutrients, and they gave the other village a, a nutritional supplement with not so many micronutrients. Um, so what happened is you basically had one set 
one of one set of villagers growing up with great nutrition, the other set growing up with really poor nutrition. And then they came back 30 or 40 years later to see what had become of those children who started out life um, with that advantage or disadvantage. And what they found is the kids with poor nutrition earned on average 10 times less than the kids with good nutrition. I mean, that's just huge. Following that up, um, the World Bank estimated recently that in countries with significant percentages of chronic malnutrition, and let's bear in mind, it's not just Madagascar with 47%. Yeah. South Africa, probably the most developed country in Africa, has 25% chronic malnutrition today. These countries with these big percentages of chronic malnutrition lose on, on average 2 to 3% of their GDP per year just as a result of chronic malnutrition. That's crazy numbers. We're talking billions and billions and billions. Um, An economic potential of a continent being slowly drained away from it um, as we are systematically brain damaging huge segments of our populations. I mean, the the scale of this is just mind-blowing. And it's, as Simeon said, it's a silent crisis. No one sees it. No one understands the implications. And no one needs to deal with it because it's, you know, no one thinks in the long term. I mean, I love that you brought that up because it's, I think it points out that it's not just a humanitarian thing, which is important, but there's also a really strong business case to just to get this Absolutely. right. Absolutely. So even if you're a hardcore capitalist out there, there's, 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 there's incentive for you to, to get in on this. Uh, Simon, I love that we're talking about this because it's something I struggle with sometimes about just getting perspective. Because on one side, there's this great feeling of progress in South Africa and around the continent and there's innovation here and technology there. And on the other hand, there's, there's talks of sort of dictatorship. You hear about a mask in Angola or chronic malnutrition in Madagascar. And it can be sometimes hard, at least for me, to get perspective on, on how we're doing and as a country and as a continent. So for me, that's why the Ibrahim Index for Governance was so, was so fascinating. While I, I really am drawn towards it because I feel like it's a, an almost objective way to give me, uh, justified hope or despair. Um, so I know you've been digging into the numbers. The results came out yesterday. On the index for governance, how are we doing as a continent, Simon? How are we doing? Give us the results. Firstly, that was a, that was a brilliant segue. That's what I do, um, man. That's what uh, I do. Very impressed. The Ibrahim Index. I agree. I think it is the closest thing that Africa has to an objective look at how well we are governed, mm. and it really is useful and it throws up some interesting counterintuitive results. Um, so this year, the overall picture is not great. Um, African governance is basically stagnating. If we look at sort of over the last four years, mm. there really has been almost no change up or down in um, the quality of, of the governance on offer. This this big picture, though, hides some, some interesting patterns mm. when you start going into the mm. details. So let's look now. I'm really interested in the star performance. Yeah, please. Um, the, 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 the six, you know, so the Ibrahim Index is broken up into four categories. There's uh, rights and participation. There is sustainable economic development or sustainable economic opportunity. There's human development. And then there is, what is the fourth one? Can't remember for the life of me, but it's, it's very important. Um, the only six countries to have improved in all four of those mm. categories, um, which means, you know, that's a consistent yeah. across the board improvement, um, are, Zimbabwe, which is fascinating, Cote d'Ivoire, Morocco, Rwanda, Senegal, and Somalia. 
Now that's a strange eclectic yeah, mix it's a really odd of, countries. of countries. You know, okay, Cote d'Ivoire, I can understand. They, um, you know, they, they had some political unrest. They sorted it. They've had a few years of stable governance and mm. things are improving. Um, Morocco, I don't really know what's happening in Morocco to explain that. Rwanda, Rwanda has historically been an improver Absolutely. in the Ibrahim Index. And, you know, that they, they, they have made huge strides in governance generally, although there are, of course, big questions about um, political rights in that country. Senegal as well is, is an example of a, of a thriving African democracy. But then you get to Somalia. What is Somalia doing in that? You know, have, are things really improving in Somalia? My take on that is, well, maybe, but you only need really tiny improvements when you are coming off such a low base mm. to make it look like things are, things are changing. And then Zimbabwe. I can only imagine that, that this, uh, you know, that Zimbabwe's figures were trumpeted all over the front page of the Herald, um, yesterday morning when it was released because this shows that despite what we all think about Zimbabwe, something's going right. Over the last four years, things in Zimbabwe have got better. Um, and again, my explanation for this can only be that, A, things were coming from a relatively low base, but B, that, you know, Zimbabwe has enjoyed some political stability since the last elections. And that stability, even if nothing really has changed on the governance front, mm -hmm. governance, poor governance plus political stability is better than poor governance plus political instability. Um, and that perhaps explains why Zimbabwe looks like it's improving. I mean, when I see some of those countries in there, I, I sometimes worry that if, if you look at a country where political rights aren't <laughs> valued as much as other places, so take a Rwanda or Zimbabwe, and we sort of commend them on, on a good performance or improving on the index, are we, are we then sort of uh, going with or, or, or giving them ammunition to continue sort of ruling the regimes the way the way they currently are well th see this is what i well, that's why i like the index so there is a certain um you know, let's take zimbabwe you know even if mugabe was you know responsible for uh, these um, these improvements we still don't like the fact that he's a dictator and he's holding on mm. to power and he's treating his opposition really badly those are all really big flashing warning lines warning lights um, and they get a lot of attention but if you flip it to countries that okay they have democracy they um, have basic respect for opposition but they are not delivering health welfare education they're, mm. they're, you know things are declining there that doesn't have the same stigma so we stigmatize um, bad leadership when it's about political rights. We do not stigmatize bad leadership when it's about socioeconomic rights in the same way. So a, a, a Democrat who doesn't deliver socioeconomic rights is just as bad as a dictator who does deliver socioeconomic rights. Um, and, I, and I think we need to start having that conversation. We need to ask ourselves, can socioeconomic rights and political rights be delivered at the same time? Mm. Um, and if not, which comes first? And so countries like Ethiopia and Rwanda, um, they have made a very conscious decision to say, you know what, we cannot deliver health, education and welfare if we're going to allow an open democracy and everyone can say whatever they want. Yep. It, it doesn't work for us. So we're going to we're going to clamp down on that. But we are going to give you these things. Um, and so far it's working. 
but it hasn't, you know, in both those cases, it hasn't really been tested in um, negative economic climates. You know, Africa has been growing over the last couple of decades, and they have participated in that and benefited mm. from it and driven it to some extent. But I think now the continent is heading into more turbulent economic times. We will see if if the, those kinds of countries have built a more sustainable model or if it really is um, – if it's going to all collapse once the growth stops. I mean, I love that you brought up that dichotomy of, um, of how we, of how we sort of stigmatize a certain kind of sort of approach to democracy. And it makes me think of things back here. I mean, I suppose everybody listening wants to know how South Africa do. Ah, South Africa. Well, the good news. Let's start with the good news, shall we? Um, we are fourth. We are the fourth best governed country in Africa. Congratulations, everybody. We have been fourth, I think, ever since the, the first iteration of the Ibrahim Index in 2007. And um, in the last four years, we have gone up slightly, but only by 0.9%, which is well within the margin of error. So we don't actually know if we've gone up or down. Um, but basically, you know, things haven't changed. So as much as everyone likes to complain about uh, Jacob Zuma, the index is saying actually... Not that much has changed. But the devil, as always, is in the details. And our high ranking actually conceals some really concerning trends. In particular, and this is, this goes over the whole history of the index. And of course, as South Africans, we, we know this. Mm. Um, we perform exceptionally poorly in the categories of personal safety and national security. Basically, South Africa is a dangerous country to be in. Um, you can't walk the streets at night. Our crime stats are incredibly high. Um, and this is a reflection of poor governance. It means, we, you know, we haven't delivered, our government has not delivered personal safety to our citizens. And this is a problem. Now, more recently, um, and more surprising is some areas where we have deteriorated. One is in the participation in human rights category. And that's driven by declines in the categories of gender and rights. So what the index is saying is actually our, our respect of human rights um, isn't looking as good as it used to, and our, our sort of gender equality issues are going backwards. And both of these are, are really worrying signs for the Rainbow Nation. I mean, that's a big one because, I mean, as a country, we sort of pride ourselves on, the, on human rights at the center of the Constitution. So I think it sort of hits even closer to home. Absolutely. And I, I you know, I've, I've been trying to think what, you know, what, what is it that, that might have changed that assessment? Um, I can think of a few things. Marikana stands out and what Marikana represents in terms of, you know, police brutality over basic civil rights. Another one is South Africa's voting record at the United Nations on human rights issues, where we have consistently abstained from supporting human rights, um, in places where it's needed most, you know, we, we, we tend to align ourselves with countries like Iran and Russia on human rights issues, neither of whom have particularly stellar records. And I, and I think that that's a problem for us. I think that you're just opening up a whole other conversation point for me about just the contradictions of, of sort of policy at home versus internationally and the whole, there was that press release that was there once upon a time, not once upon a time, probably a month ago, six weeks ago, about uh, about the ANC stance at foreign policy and the whole anti-West direction. And everything you're saying is just making me think of the, the giant inconsistency of of how we approach human rights at home versus, at, you know, in other countries and at the AU and the UN. You know, I, I get the feeling that, that human rights is not at the top of this particular government's agenda. Um, on the international scene, it is much less 
constrained than it is at home. It can kind of do what it likes, and it knows it has support in the, from the allies that it is choosing, um, mm. namely Russia, China. Um, and, and, and Russia especially is playing a major role with, with South Africa at the moment. At home, there is still a legacy of respect for human rights. There's still a constitution, which is one of the most forward-thinking in the world. There's still a judiciary, which is holding the government to account. There's still an incredibly vocal civil society. All these things um, mean that the government does have to pay lip service, at least, to the, to the, the basic tenets of respecting human and civil rights. And th- that is a good thing. That means that South Africa is functioning as it's supposed to. You know, the whole idea of a balance of powers is that when one part of the government goes a bit off-piste, then other parts of the government and society can come in and correct that. And I think that that is happening in South Africa, and it's a really good sign. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. For the first time in history, we're ending the show on a good note. (laughs) And it's from Simon Allison himself. Simon, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming through. Always a pleasure, Kingsley. Fantastic. Everybody, remember to share the podcast far and wide. You can also subscribe on iTunes. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. That's a Daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.